This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. When writers set out to put pen to paper, they choose the type of book that they will write. But sometimes it's an author's name that might indicate the genre. I could never imagine a crime novel written by Patsy Poppenbeck. Welcome to Published or Not, Patsy Poppenbeck. Thank you very much. It was your idea to publish this anthology and the title South of the Sun was your idea too. But what's the subtitle of this book? The subtitle is Australian Fairy Tales for the 21st Century. Patsy, how difficult is it to define what a fairy tale is? It's actually extremely difficult and many theses have been written about this. Rebecca Ann C. Do Rosario. Anyway, she says that once upon a time the people tried to define fairy tale, they are still trying. Not all fairy tales feature fairies. Fairy tales can include magic, supernatural creatures, metamorphosis, happy endings, true love, superstitions, sword fights, cross-dressing and even morals. But there are no rules and no definitive claims on authenticity. The fairy tales in this anthology, are they for children? No. And, in fact, one actually has a trigger warning, <laughs> possibly the only fairy tale in the world with a trigger warning, although there are, when you get into fairy tales, there are some truly horrific fairy tales. But we wanted this collection of fairy tales to be for young adults and those older. So it's definitely not for children. Carmel Bird writes the first fairy tale in this anthology. We see very, very clearly how an adaption of a fairy tale can be made because you know, quite often fairy tales were set in the Black Forest with wolves. It's quite different in Australia. How, what has Carmel Bird made dangerous? Well, she's made the ocean dangerous. So her equivalent are the sharks. Now read a little bit just to illustrate some of her mixture of comedy and scariness and and lyricism, and she even works in a bit of naturalism. In Australia, that big island surrounded by wild seas and glittering beaches, when girls go swimming in the ocean, they are sometimes eaten by sharks. Mothers hand over colourful towels and tubes of ultra-sheet, dry-touch, 100 factor sunscreen saying, yes, my darling daughter, smear this on your precious skin and don't go near the water. (laughs) This short story is followed by a very clever and scary story by Kate Kennedy. This is Mm. of a girl being lured to unsafe territory by a very creepy man. Her mobile is out of battery, so she calls on her GPS. There are other adaptions of fairy tales we know into an Australian setting. Well, I'm sure you know the one about kissing a frog, but the girl is enamoured not by a frog, but a special type of bird which cannot be trusted. What type of bird was that? The appropriately named liar bird. And this is another creepy or fairly creepy story, which is a kind of antithesis to the romantic fantasy of I'll meet a monster and he will transform 
into a beautiful mm. prince. And then, well, everybody knows the Pied Piper, the piped away rats and then children. What did Gabby Brown have a man with a mouth organ organised to take away? He organised to take away or charmed to take away snakes out of Melbourne and he's hired by a devious politician. My goodness, do we know those? <laughs> to do so. And, of course, the devious politician tries to get out of it and something terrible happens to a very important part of Melbourne. Shall I reveal all? No, you cannot. You have to allow the readers to work out what could Melbourne lose as a tourist attraction. Mm. Oh, you mentioned politicians. What about Jack and the Beanstalk, foiled by bureaucrats? Patsy, could you read that first paragraph by Nindy Mitchell? Once upon a time, beyond the black stump, there lived a poor mother and her son, Jack. The pair had fallen on tough times. Young Jack was one of the chronically unemployed rural youth and his single mother was on Newstart. Then Centrelink lost all their paperwork. The local Centrelink office closed down. The call centre never answered their calls and the family's new NBN connection made going online impossible. Because the NBN is rubbish. <laughs> Look, this this one just oh, it just confounded me how she could twist and and manipulate the story of Jack and the Beanstalk into being foiled by bureaucrats and the useless NBN. Oh, another adaptation, Beauty and the Beast. She had to climb a mountain and bring back a wedge-tailed eagle feather before sunset to win the right to marry a foreign prince. No wonder that beast looked much better. Often in the fairy tales, a couple would wish for a baby. This is a quote. They tried a multitude of positions, thermometers, fertility calendars, and failed dismally. The doctors prodded and poked and withdrew fluids. They inserted and tested and cultivated, but it's to no avail. So one story, the baby was fairer than sunrise, lovelier than sunset, and more beautiful than dusk. But what about the baby in the other family? How would you describe that baby? The Miraculous Tale of the Ugliest Girl in the World by Catherine Gosso, who happens to be on our committee. And the illustration of that was just wonderful. So there yes. are illustrations through this book. There's two different stories of brothers becoming crows and magpies and a number of very original stories. We said at the very beginning, this is Australian stories. Sometimes get it there through setting, but you were very keen to sort of say that they're not borrowed from dream time. That's correct. Uh, one of the things we wanted to do was, was be very specifically Australian because we felt fairy tales are so important. They're part of planting yourself in the environment so that we can say, yes, we are Australian and we value our environment. But at the same time, we did not want to appropriate any sacred Dreamtime stories. However, we were very lucky to get the second published story by Gurindji Elder called Ronnie Wavehill, who's one of involved in the famous Wavehill walkout in 1966. And he gave us a wonderful story about mermaids. And it's also illustrated by his niece, Kira Dandy. 100% authentic. <laughs> but I'd also like you to read 
from page 195 because this this sort of set up what we know as Dreamtime type stories, but quite originally. Yes, this story is Cado by Annie Stewart, who in fact is of Indigenous heritage. Once upon at the edge of the dreaming, in the season of the black cockatoo, a baby girl was born in the central highlands under the canopy of a sacred tree. On that first day, when she lay sleeping in her mother's arms, a bee landed on her lips. It was a sign the child will be blessed with eloquence. This daughter of the earth was born to be a storyteller. Well, I think there's a lot of people who are because the original stories in this, and I must say, Patsy Poppenbeck, yours, the red dress, it was the stepfather, not the stepmother, the stepfather that caused Isabel so much concern. I taught a lot of girls in, in a previous life, some of them quite troubled, and especially when one of the parents is irresponsible and the other one is very focused on getting on in the world. That was why I had the stepfather as, as a villain. But the mother is kind of the passive mm-hmm. consenter. Yes, selling a daughter, perhaps not the nicest thing to do. So Henry, the black cat, giving solace to people who were dying. That was a lovely one. And then there's Sophie Mason. She set her story in a hippie commune and the tragedy of a mysterious drowning and brought in that thought about the Snow Queen that could leave shards of glass in your heart. And and then there was the stone statue that one young disaffected girl noticed would change its expression. The writers in this anthology have discovered their own fairy tales, but it's always interesting to see how some have borrowed some from other cultures and brought them in, like the boggart that came over from Ireland that really did not like it here. Yes. It's um, a very and, colonial settler story. Yes. And the wattle imp that grabbed the pen and changed a story. We can't tell how, but the origins of fairy bread and how they fit into this anthology, very, very clever. You got this anthology together through most unusual means. Well, we we actually got some money from the Australian Fairy Tales Society, but it wasn't enough because one of the things we wanted to do was to pay people reasonably professional rates, which emerging writers for instance, particularly tend not to get paid. And uh, so we needed some more money, so we ran a possible campaign, which was very interesting. And I would highly recommend it to everybody because the possible people were terrific to us and it was an interesting, if rather nerve-wracking thing to do. You've mentioned the Australian Fairy Tale Society. So tell us a little bit more about that. I'm a comparatively recent member, believe it or not, but it was begun in 2013 by a group mostly of women, runs a conference every year, sponsors productions such as this. We meet in various state rings about every four months or so and discuss fairy tales. Of course, this has all been by Zoom in the last two years. Anyway, various things to do with promoting fairy tales and people that are artists in the fairy tale world, illustrators, actors, singers, storytellers, as well as writers. 
this anthology, it's tight, it gets you moving, it has a variety of fairy tales, as you said. Mm. And another that introduced a word. Now, how about you? Because you know this woman and she invented this word. From page 92, the word is Glinda. Let's hear it in your voice. Oh, Glinda, a verb I, Louisa John Kroll in this case, invented. It is a hybrid of glimmer, linger and mingle. Active musing, fey hobnobbing. It may involve ambling, meandering, roaming, flickering or weaving through a gathering. Its speed varies from lolling to darting in curiosity, whimsy and a dash of mischief. Well, I glinded through this anthology and enjoyed it very much. And now, Patsy, if we've piqued people's interest, where can they get this anthology? Probably the easiest way to get it is by contacting Serenity Press. They'll post it directly to you. Any good bookshop should be able to get it. And there is a bookshop in Seddon, which presently has apparently nine copies. Both the trip to Seddon to get it. Yes. Yeah. Patsy Poppenbeck is one of the 40 contributors to South of the Sun, Australian fairy tales for the 21st century, which are strictly for grown-ups. Thank you very much, Patsy. And now it's David's turn. Poetry is a powerful force. And my guest today, Maxine Beneva-Clark, uses her pen and her poetry to challenge readers about the treatment of women, about our politics and even our environment. So, Maxine, welcome to 3CR. Thanks, David. It's nice to be here. I'm going to begin with the prologue, but before I do, I'm going to have to apologise to the listener because I'm about to use the F word, but I think it's appropriate in this instance. I said, get the fuck back. I'm warning you. I've got poetry. Their hands were trembling, their eyes were wild, and I could smell their fear. There's a delightful humour in this poetry, but also an underlying power when it comes to what poetry can achieve and the role of poetry in our society today. Yeah, I think that's something that intrigues me, you know, this conception of poetry. I I think it's something we still learn at high school when we study you know, poetry that's kind of the love poem, Shakespeare's love sonnets and things like that, or or Keats' Ode to Aggression Urn, that poetry should be really an ode or anthem to something glorious. But this idea that it can also be a weapon or a shield uh, really appeals to me. But the way you go about it, it's almost through the humour. But you yeah. will, as we will find out, tackle some very powerful issues. Humour in poetry is also something I appreciate. Even though I'm dealing with quite heavy topics, that ability to kind of do something that gives the reader a giggle, I think I sometimes lean towards. The anthology is called How Decent Folk Behave. And we find that line in the poem, Something Sure. And again, this poem works on many levels. Sit down here now, baby, stop that fidgeting, listen big and understand Mama's got to school you about something sure for you grow into a man. I know you're young and I taught you well how decent folk behave. But if the time comes, every woman is your mama when it comes to saving. 
you've got an almost impossible challenge that you've set up for the mother and child here. An uneducated woman trying to inculcate something into her very young child, and yet the issue is so important. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I was writing this around the time that uh, Hannah Clark passed away at the hands, or was murdered at the hands of her ex-partner. And of course, violence against women, as we know, is quite an epidemic in Australia. And just this idea that it's an adult problem, you know, when we know that abusers are created through society and through the entitlement um, and so it's both, it's, it's two things. It's both, I suppose, a mother's despair that, you know, maybe I've given birth to someone who might one day do that. And also the passing of responsibility onto the next male generation. And this was definitely a poem where there was a definite aim. How do I conceptualise almost a, a solution or a potential solution? But there's almost no solution there because... The mother is at a loss and the child is so young. So where does the solution come from? The solution comes hopefully from the man the child will grow into. You know, when the parent, when the mother is saying, you know, if you're in the lunchroom and you see your colleagues or you hear your colleagues, and a lot of the things named in the poem aren't physical violence. It's kind of, you know, if you hear your friends talking badly about their girlfriends or if you see a man on the street kind of standing over a woman. So I guess trying to look at the seed of the problem, both from the point of view of the, the young man, very young man. And, and this poem, it could really be to a two-year-old or it could be to a 13-year-old. You know, there's a really large age range that I imagine this mother could be speaking to. So I kind of tried to leave that. Other than her saying, I know you're young, there's no kind of specified age. Now, you take on the political establishment when it comes to the role of women as well in the poem Capital, and it's shocking but true. In Grade 5, they bus our children to the Capital, to the long white building, high majestic on the hill, where the boys mostly learn, you study hard, you might well work here one day, mate, while the girls hang back and button their collars. This place is where women get raped. It's frightening, but it's true. Yeah, true and literally true. You know, my, my kids both, you know, at their school in either grade five or six, they literally bust them to Canberra and that's kind of, you know, they do the Parliament House trip. I think almost every public school in Australia does it, you know, learning about government. And I was literally thinking at that particular time, imagine being bused to the capital as a young girl. And knowing what's happened and being taken there by your teacher and shown through these rooms, you know. And the report has come out about the treatment of women in Parliament as mm. well, which is, again, just as shocking. But you've sort of intensified it in the poem. I mean, we don't see the capital that way. We don't look at things that way. And yet, very simply, shown it to us. You again take on politics in 19, where... It's 19 votes that brought somebody into Parliament. Again, is that a true representation of how we should be running a country where 19 votes is all that counts in getting somebody who may not necessarily be truly representative? I think it's funny. Sometimes, you know, if I read one of these poems at a reading or something, it sounds like hyperbole. 
When you say the capital is the place where women get raped, when you say 19 votes get a man into parliament, when you say, you know, there's a white supremacist alone rules, it sounds, it sounds almost like parody. And I think that's the thing that reading back on these pieces that shocks me that I'm not really doing much to heighten the situation and just realising how absurd some of these things are. But it highlights the role of poetry where the moment is encapsulated and put out so clearly, so precisely, so simply, yet so forcefully. Yeah, I think choosing the entry point for the poem is is really important for me. So, for example, the poem Capital, you know, had that been a politician as the narrative voice, it would have been completely different you know, rather than a kind of third a third person parent saying, my kid's going on this camp to the capital. Or, you know, similarly, the, the title poem, a mother addressing her child, if that was, you know, even the child speaking, I think it would be worded differently. So I think, yeah, poetry has the power. For me, the power is at the entry point and the viewpoint, the perspective that's given. Another political one is section 116, which has a current relevancy, Scotty Morrison is trying to get the religious freedom legislation through. And you take this on as well. Kindness and tolerance, generosity and truth, our innate capacity to be good to each other. I mean, that religious freedom is already in the Constitution. You Mm. put it simply then about kindness and tolerance in the poem. And yet the politicians are tearing their hair out trying to get something through, which seems to be now irrelevant. And what's it saying about us as a country? You know, for me, you know, when I, my pre-poetry days, I also did a a law degree and my thesis was actually on religious freedom and uh, under anti-discrimination law. And, you know, one thing I thought about, I'm, I'm not a religious person, you know, so this idea that it's belief, you know, for me, it's belief that should be protected. And that includes non-belief and I think that was the key thing for this poem as well what is this section about and section 116 is about the right to belief of any kind but also then you touch on those elements of the human of, of human nature that should come to the fore you don't need to legislate it if we're kind mm. tolerant generous mm. truthful These things should apply and already do. And the Constitution actually acknowledges that and protects it. So an open-ended question, what are the politicians up to? What are they trying to achieve with a lot? But again, the role of poetry in addressing these fundamental concerns. People say all poetry is political, but in some ways it's also the antithesis of politics. You know, when you're able to strip things back and be so bare and so condensed all of a sudden, you know, you can see things with a clarity that that loses its political spin. I'm going to come full circle now. Some of the most powerful poems, of course, are the ones you've written about women. And there's one entitled, The Monsters Are Out. But most of the monsters have the same face as our sleeping four-year-olds. This sort of brings me back to the poem we discussed earlier of a mother trying to teach her child. And you've put and juxtaposed those two images of of the child and the monster. It's frightening, really. Is that what you intended? 
Yeah, I think with this poem, again, it was written, um, I think, after the death of Ayama Asawi, who was, I suppose, you know, the last in a long line of women who had been killed by strangers. And so there was this sense in Melbourne that, you know, women were being really careful and, and buddying up to go home and, and looking over their shoulders. But of course, when you look at the statistics, most women who are killed uh, by men are killed at the hands of a partner or former partner. And so I did want to convey the horror of that and kind of change this narrative. And even when we, we are killed by strangers, you know, those strangers are still somebody's son and somebody's brother, and in some cases, somebody's partner. And so, yeah, it's intended to shock, but also to bring home that everything is completely interconnected. You know, our, our sleeping children in their beds at home are connected to that, that stranger on the street who has just slain a woman. And only by integrating them can, can we really solve the issue. The other connection you achieve is a global one because you make references throughout history on Speculum. I mean, Dr. J. Marion Sims, Mari Stokes, people whose good intentions, can I put it that way, have backfired and uh, who've been, uh, you know, imposing approaches and practices on women. Uh, you touch on events in Norway. And, and so poetry is global in that regard. Yeah, I think what I part of what I love about this condensed art form is the ability to just very quickly flash to somewhere completely different in the world to show that actually this isn't a domestic issue I'm talking about. This is connected with history and it's connected with globalisation. And I think there's no other form for me that has that shorthand language of just kind of grabbing an image and all of a sudden if you've completely broadened the lens of something. I think that's what excites me about working in the poetic form. Last but not least then, this condensing, it seems almost effortless when you read it. I'm wondering if that's the case when you're writing? Yeah, I think probably as a result of being a spoken word poet, I think about or conceptualise a poem. I might not even write it down. I'd just kind of perfect a line, remember that line and move on to the next line. So there was a lot of meditating on getting that one line right. And I think that that's the way I come to poetry is by the time I have pen to paper and I'm writing the poem, I've actually been thinking about that poem for five or six weeks beforehand. You know, I want to write a poem that's set in Parliament. I want it to be really short and I want it to really condense. And, and so I do do a lot of editing and drafting and things like that. But in terms of that process of conceptualising the poem to getting it onto the page, there's a lot of kind of you know, while you're doing the washing up or whatever, you know, while you're doing the shopping, oh, yeah, I could do this, I could do that. And I think also I think it comes from having had, not anymore, but having had small kids, you know, when my kind of writing career took off, this oh, I don't have time to take notes, I'll just have to remember that bit kind of thing. And I think that that comes through more in my poetry, just that clarity of, okay, I know exactly what I'm going to do with this. Even though in the editing process, I might be throwing lines over my shoulder or, you know, chopping bits here and there, that first dump on the page is a lot more coherent than it would have been 10 or 15 years ago. Well, if the listener wants to find out more about Maxine's work, the anthology is How Decent Folk Behave. It's a Hachette release. And the author, Maxine Beniba Clark, or the poet, I should say. So, Maxine, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thanks so much, David, and for such wonderful questions. 
You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.